Yo, it's Julian on the Brown Note Harry Potter special. Now, there's a, probably a lot to explain here. Now, I always hated Harry Potter. Uh, we're in the year 2020. And up until about five days ago, I had never actually seen any of it. I've never read any of the books. I've never had anything to do with it. Um, and normally on this show, I will focus on content that I've sort of recently engaged with, music or movies. And a lot of the time that's new stuff or watching new films. But I haven't seen anything recently. And I went away for my birthday. I hadn't involved myself in the news. And I was feeling a bit low and they had the uh, first Harry Potter film on the TV. And I'd watched bits. I'd watched like 20 minutes here and then. I just found it too childish. And I found the whole public school world a bit too much and grating. And when it came out, I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And it just seemed like a child's world. Um, so I never wanted anything to do with it. And I watched the first one. And I thought it was okay. Um, but I was piqued by uh, Alfonso Cuaron being the director of the, the third film, the esteemed double Oscar-winning director, and the reviews it got. So I thought, OK, I'll watch the second one to get to the third one. And I ended up being sucked in because the pretty much there was about four films in a row which were all really well-reviewed and excellent films, and I ended up watching the whole lot. So I thought it would be silly to waste that opportunity because I've never done a, a review of a Harry Potter film this is solely about the films it's got nothing to do with J.K. Rowling's books um, even though she was I think executive producer on much of it so I thought I'd, I'd review each film and I've never had so many notes on a show because I normally spend about 20 minutes waffling without anything in front of me about films but I can't because there's just not enough time to fit it all in so it's going to be an absolute nightmare so I'm going to review all the films uh, in pairs. So coming up after this will be numbers one and two. And I'll also pepper in, hopefully, a couple of other things, uh, one of which will be my uh, top 15 pros and cons about the Potter franchise. Only 20 years too late. So we begin with Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the first book and film. They were actually quite closely uh, released, not too far apart, if you look at Lord of the Rings coming out in 1952 and it being nearly 50 years before the first live-action film. Uh, we join Harry, an orphaned 11-year-old boy living in suburban England in, um, I think, a very Dickensian world, a very Victorian Dickensian world where, you know, kids are mistreated by abusive step-parents. An orphanage shows up later on, but it's a very Dickensian Oliver sort of world. And he's plucked from this uh, abusive life where his parents have been killed and his, his abusive sort of guardians look after him and told that he is a wizard and he's taken away to Hogwarts Wizarding School, which kind of reminded me of Great Expectations where Pip's whisked out of his poverty-stricken world and taken to um, live a, a life of uh, well-to-do people. Um, and he's also told that his parents were also wizards and that he is something special kind of like a chosen one exactly the chosen one i'm not sure how emphatically that's sort of rammed home at the start um and that's where we meet the trio that lasts throughout the series which is uh rupert grint as ron weasley and emma watson as hermione granger now they say hermione all of what you through the series differently and i've tried my hardest to find out how you say it i think it's hermione i'm sticking with that but they're the trio that are the famous three that last throughout the series, and they're perfectly cast. Now, um, 
during their first year, there's Mystery of the Philosopher's Stone. Um, it's all a bit too much of a celebration of the upper class for me at the start. The, the biggest problem I had was when the director was revealed to be Chris Columbus. Now, Chris Columbus is, um, for me, a real hack. Uh, Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire, nine months was like one of the worst rom-coms ever. And recently, Pixels, the Adam Sandler film. There isn't anything in his filmography that wouldn't lead me to believe that this would be a disaster. But curiously, it isn't. Um, I, I wonder whether the... I'm bigging myself up as an English person, but I wonder whether the overreaching J.K. Rowling insisted Englishness of the franchise stop this film from being anything like the... You know, it's not like a Home Alone film. It's not zany. It's not slapstick. It hasn't got overreaching set pieces too much that are reliant on comedy. Um, it's actually a pretty pretty centre ground. Re and the humour doesn't always come from, like, big, bawdy humour. It's um, And kids aren't screaming all the time. It's actually fairly middle ground and nice. Um, it's very perfunctory, but respectful um the young cast don't act but they're very well cast apart from real standout emma watson who's magnificent in this she sparkles and she'd be a child star in any film in fact she would be the macaulay culkin not daniel radcliffe um mainly these films survive from the acting point on their old guard casts it seems like if you're an english actor over the age of 40 and you weren't in lord of the rings you were in harry potter and it's about 50 of them throughout the eight films um it's 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 a spellbinding environment but it's not a particularly imaginative one um i feel like the imagination in here in this goes so far it doesn't create an entirely new paradigm for either fantasy or this kind of thing he could have been in another world without the magic at a posh school and they could have run a different storyline where the environment was broadly the same. Um, I found this score by John Williams, who dominates some of the earlier films, really bombastic and actually quite unpleasant. Um, but the film itself is bolstered by the fact that it's a shock of the new. So you're discovering the Posse universe, where he's this burgeoning wizard, meeting all his new friends at school, seeing the wizarding school, meeting all the new teachers, and entering into this new world, you do it together. So that bolsters a lot of the film. And it's also very quick. It doesn't hang around. It's not too boringly long. Um, it's very zippy. Um, so I was very impressed by Chris Columbus's job here. I thought Robbie Coltrane really stood out um, as a very good uh, character, Hagrid. Um, Alan Richmond was immediately uh, the most interesting character for me as Severus Snape. And they have a nice twist. She throws in a lot of twists, very sort of... It's hard to do twists well, and I wouldn't say she's the best at it ever, but given that we get twists throughout the franchise, she is actually quite good at twists. And the twist with Snape, uh, him being this obvious villain who ends up not being a villain at all, was a good one, and I did enjoy that. Uh, I also enjoyed Maggie Smith and Richard Harris as Dumbledore. Um, and there were some good revelations in the third section of the film, um, I, I, it's a, it, when it came out, it was the second most profitable film in history. And that I don't understand. Because it could have flown by under the radar. It wasn't anything that special. And obviously that was the fan base. Um, it's pretty low stakes, but I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 for a good job. Uh, we move on to Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Secrets, which introduces Dobby the Elf, 
who is much loved by fans, not by me. He's a Jar Jar Binks of the whole scenario. Um, there's an episodic nature to the whole Harry Potter franchise, so they keep going back for a second term, third term. There are pluses and minuses to that. Um, it, this time around, it amplifies the Agatha Christie element in the fact that we keep finding bodies frozen and cryptic messages scrawled on the wall. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is a standout as um, a completely useless magician that is um, flash out of the Blackadder series. He just thinks that he's the greatest thing that's ever existed, but you actually can't back it up at all, and he was extremely funny. Now, the episodic thing, it's like it, it works on one level because you get to move through each year with them, but where it doesn't work is they've gone for this overreaching epic storyline epic fantasy it's like lord of the rings but lord of the rings you step one foot outside of the house and you never come back you just keep going um here it is the most repetitious film out of the lot um everything that happens in the first film seems to happen here just a little bigger and more bloated and it's the longest film with the probably the least story um, because you don't get the introductory element. So it hasn't got a very good story, but it's really, really long, two hours and I think 40 minutes. There is some nice elements and twists, but um, Harry being best at everything all the time, I found really grating. He's just constantly mentioned, and it's really annoying. And then you've got Emma uh, Watson, who's the, the best character. She spends half the film frozen in suspended animation, um it's almost unbearably long it repeats so much from the first film here's draco bullying someone in exactly the same way here is the end where you surprisingly win the school cup um it was the most childish and difficult to sit through for me so i'm going to give it a four out of ten now you're with julian continuing the harry potter special as i've uh, got just seen for the first time all the movies after avoiding them for nearly two decades um, and the film that made me want to watch them at all was the third one because of the reviews and because of the director being a double Oscar winner. Starts again, family rows with um, Harry at home in this suburban environment with his brutal guardians. Um, this time he blows up his aunt and she floats out the window, which is quite amazing. Um, and he escapes the family again, which is a bit repetitious, but it feels like there's a different class here. It feels like a miniature classic scene. And that's followed by him in the park at night as a kid with a suitcase. And elements of fear crept in and vulnerability, which I hadn't noticed in the franchise at all. Everything had been a bit comic book until then, but actually stung a bit. Uh, and this one revolves around the character of Sirius Black. Uh, Gary Oldman plays him, who's a murderer kept in the prison of Azkaban which is where all the wizards who are evil get sent to um, and he's related to Voldemort and the involvement with Harry Potter's parents being murdered by Voldemort. Uh, Voldemort's the antagonist of the whole series but he gradually emerges. Um, this time we get Professor Lupin uh, who could guess what he is? I really laughed when I heard the name uh, play, uh, played by David Thwellis. He's one of my favourite characters in the whole series, my favourite mentor character. And the Dementors, these floating ghost apparitions that come and um, suck your soul out, are actually pretty terrifying and really well visualised. The reason I wanted to watch it is, I said uh, on the Mexico specials I did, last decade, five of the ten Best Director Oscars were won by Mexican directors. And there's this trinity of Alfonso Cuaron, 
Guillermo del Toro and Alejandro Inarritu, who have dominated cinema this century. And the fact that he directed this really made me pique my interest. He's only done three films since, Children of Men, Gravity and Roma, and he's won Best Director Oscar for two of those. Everything here is twice as good. It's a completely different feel, a completely different tone. Um, the cinematography is more artistic. Um, it's a lot less wiggles in feel, which might be fair because the kids are, are gradually growing up, but the whole thing flows better. The screenplay flows better. The acting's superior. The drama's deeper. And um, this is a weird one because one of the main characters is Dumbledore, Gandalf of the series. And he's the only major character that's replaced by a different actor. So we go from Richard Harris to Michael Gambon. And they both have a different take on the character because Richard Harris died a few days before this film was actually released. Um, I think this is the first one that was actually almost like a Lord of the Rings standard film. It was beautifully made. Um, it was um, a, it was an artistic feeling screenplay. It didn't. It wasn't just filming the kids at school. Everything seemed to have the purpose. The shots were very good. The colour tonality was awesome. The music sounded toned down to me. And the performances started to come out of the film. And the last third is packed with the best revelations so far. Um, the characters of um, Professor Lupin and also uh, Sirius Black, the revelations surrounding those are very, very good and surprising. And it was by far the best film and a massive bump up. So I'm going to give uh, Azkaban... Uh, the eight, eight and a half out of ten for that one. It was superb. I really enjoyed it. Um, and then we go on a track of changing directors for every other film. Um, they they do it for about three or four in a row, and then they keep the same director for like the last four films. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Um, this one's at the Tri Wizard Tournament, so it introduces for the first time an international element. We actually get two other schools from different parts of the world. One from Eastern Europe and one from France, and they do the most embarrassing dance entrances. I was, what, who thought that was a good idea? They come in like the Eurovision Song Contest cross with the Olympics. It's very embarrassingly bad. Um, another thing that's annoying about this franchise is the way that it's so obvious that Harry's going to get picked for everything. He's too young to be picked. They pick one wizard from each school to fight in this incredibly dangerous tri-wizard tournament, so they have to be over 17, and Harry's 14 at this stage. Um, but of course he gets picked as a, a co-partner for the um, actual real pick, who's Robert Pattinson, before Twilight. Um, there's three stages to the competition, uh, and we find out as it goes along that there's a guiding hand to these three really dangerous events that occur throughout the film, and the first major confrontation with Voldemort. Um, and also we see uh, Voldemort appear, in flesh for the first time with Ralph Fiennes playing him and the first confrontation with Harry Potter as well. Uh, Mike Newell was the director this time uh, and he'd done so one great film, Donnie Brasco and Four Weddings and a Funeral, but a lot of really important TV work as well. I was very impressed by how he kept the artistry, he kept the tone, uh, he kept the production values, uh, the quality of the cinematography, um, but he brought his own new elements to it. Um, I thought the acting by the three main leads was the best so far. I thought they were really good, and they actually develop. And Emma Watson at the ball, uh, I thought that whole sequence was probably one of the most affecting and human 
sequences for any of the three. She appears on the staircase in a dress at the ball for the first time as a beautiful young woman and it must have been a big moment for Harry Potter fans to see that, her smile beaming. But afterwards she's crying because um, of what happens at the ball but it's really well done because um, she's crying because the two friends she's got are too emotionally immature to understand her and what she's feeling and what she's saying it's almost like the way that girls always go out with guys two years older than them at school um it's because the guys their own age are emotionally immature to them so they need to actually relate to someone that is on their level and it's a really quite poignant and powerful moment that she's sort of crying out of frustration that these guys are just idiots <laughs> um up until now, we've had. A, I love the way it's. They're so young because we don't get teenage relationships like Twilight all the way through. Um, but the relationships handling in this is pretty dire, and Harry's relationships are awful throughout. But happily, we've got all the way through to film four without them. Um, the international element at the start is a World Cup, and that's pretty thrilling because we first time we get massive crowd scenes, big vast open areas and carnage that is like lord of the rings with them chasing in destroying villages uh that was pretty good uh robert pattinson only gets a small role here but he was star making in it he's should be the jock that's so good looking that everyone hates but he's just he's just a really nice likable lad uh and when he perishes i'm not doing spoiler alerts on something 20 years old uh it's it's really affecting it's the most affecting part so far and it's definitely the darkest third of any of the harry potter films so far uh brendan gleason is awesome he turns up every every film introduces like a couple of major new old school english actors he's awesome as is miranda richardson as a horrible agent of the nefarious press um it's a really well balanced film i thought the way they used the three events sort of equidistant in the film as a sort of holding pattern to pepper the legacy story moving along in between those moments i thought that made for a really well balanced film um and it's very it's the most emotionally rich film as well everything feels like it's waking up so another eight and a half out of ten for harry potter and the goblet of fire but as a break after we had the uh, first two uh, well first okay film second pretty bad but three and four were magnificent uh, having a break from the actual reviews, my top 15 pros and cons of the Potter franchise. At 15, it's a pro and a con, and that's Dumbledore. A uh, very up-and-down character for me. Two actors, Richard Harris and Michael Gambon, both esteemed actors, and Harris died after the second film. And they both had different takes on Dumbledore, but that's not really... I think, the, I think Richard Harris was, for me, better, but he was too frail. And Gambon was like, it's almost like Big Bear, Baby Bear. Gambon was a bit too vivid and dynamic and Harris was a bit too frail. Uh, and there was never a balance in between, which may have been the perfect way. But one of the cons for me is that Gambon's take on Dumbledore changed throughout the films, I thought. It was, I never quite knew who he was. So that's a, a pro, two great actors, sometimes great performances, but a very uneven character. At 14, a con. The handling of the final two films, really bad. Um, the seventh, they were split into two, The Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2. I thought that they um, were actually making one film 
and then decided that it was too long and cut it in half rather than started with the intention of making two films. And what that left was the second film that was very rushed in feeling and the first film that they had to pad out. And I think if they'd have chosen to do things differently by moving some of the stuff from the second film to the first film, reducing the length of that one as well by about half an hour, it would have been much, much better. But it's a very uneven enterprise. 13, a pro, and that's the cast. I thought that the uh, cast of oldies was a bit obvious. Lord of the Rings did it slightly better. Well, actually quite a lot better. But they were always standouts. Um, people like Robbie Coltrane, for me, was a particular favourite. David Swellis, I thought, was wonderful as Remus Lupin. Uh, he brought a vivid reality to it. He, I heard him described as the uh, school teacher that's brilliant that everyone loves and forms a bond with but gets sacked for being a hopeless alcoholic. That is really quite true. Uh, and he was complex, as was George uh, Jim Broadbent as Horace Slughorn. He was very dodgy and elitist and snobbish, and he's had his little soirees with his favourites. But he was also a complex man. He had a lot of sadness to him, and he was also brave when it mattered. So the old cast stood out continually. Lots of them brought their A-game. Um, they very weren't really well developed, though. Uh, 12 in my top 15 pros and cons. Harry's romances is a con. They were always terrible. The romances in general weren't well handled, but Harry's were continually a few furtive glances and a smile, and that was about it. And his love interests were always painfully poorly developed. Uh, 11, a pro. Starting them so young meant that we weren't smacked in the face with the young adult romance with Harry's always spending the entire sequence of movies having this painful Mary Jane love affair it didn't rear its ugly head until the fourth film and even then it was kept in the background so that was good uh at number 10 a con um the characters are too one-dimensional they never developed most of the characters much they sort of started they weren't in the films enough uh and they were often reduced to holding patterns where they didn't develop and they weren't detailed enough uh and i felt that was a waste of the talent that they had at number nine a pro voldemort he was a very well-developed villain. I thought that they could have had um, the Alan Rickman Snape character as a perfectly great villain. And uh, Voldemort, with Ralph Fiennes playing him, was exceptional. I've heard him described as the sort of new Darth Vader. But what was great about him was in the later films, when he actually got more screen time, and it was his weaknesses, his vanity, his needless cruelty... Uh, his amazing disloyalty to absolutely anyone. He really is very close to Donald Trump. He was narcissistic. He didn't care how much you'd done from him. He'd throw you away at a drop of a hat. He was completely obsessed with himself. His own image, that's why he hated Harry Potter so much. One of the reasons was uh, the image dent it got him. So he was a really good character. Uh, number eight, a con. Uh, too much repetition in downtime. The second film is awash with repetition. And the seventh film is just nearly all downtime. And that happens not so much in the films in between, but in the, um, the it does happen. There's, there's too many scenarios where characters act out almost the same lines throughout. Draco being a, a put, case in point. Um, Number seven, a pro, the production design, particularly from three on, was magnificent. The cinematography, the soundstage, the location shooting, the set construction, the colour tonality, everything about the production design in these films was magnificent, top-tier stuff. Number six, a con, 
The whole thing was a bit too traditional for me. It wasn't iconoclastic. Uh, it was very ordinary. Um, it wasn't very connected to the modern world and it made it hard when it sort of tried to connect to the modern world with all the apocalyptic stuff in the later movies. It, it kind of was an uneasy balance for me to care about real people because it didn't feel like they were part of the world. I thought they could have done a little bit more outside of the box. At number five, Emma Watson is a pro. Hermione, Hermione, am I saying it right? Hermione, I'll say it Hermione. Her Hermione Granger was absolutely a standout. She sparkled throughout. She was magnificent, massively outstripping the guys and a great character. She was brittle and she was often rude, but utterly charming without being able to help it. But she was also phenomenally intelligent and phenomenally capable. So massive pro. At number four, really sorry, a con Daniel Radcliffe and the character of Harry Potter. His performances got better towards the end, but they were pretty ropey throughout the first half of the franchise. And his character was just really annoying. He was, he was kind of vain himself. Maybe you would be in that scenario with everyone telling you you're the chosen one, but it got grating, everyone picking Harry all the time, everyone greeting him going, oh, Harry Potter. That was really annoying for me. I found him to be, he was pretty much always the most boring character. Um, and Ron uh, Beasley as well, fan favourite, 50% um, great, 50% annoying, uh, too annoyingly stupid at times. And then he took on what Harry took on in the last half, which was really grating, was the emo twilight moping where you're self-obsessed and miserable all the time. And that was grating. So a con for Daniel Radcliffe as Harry and slightly for Ron Beasley. And number three, a pro, uh, the progress the, the film's made. Following the characters as they aged was a massive plus. Uh, the acting got better. The director changes. Even though Chris Columbus wouldn't have been my choice, maybe he was right for when they were just little kids. And maybe uh, Quaron would have been a terrible choice to helm that first movie. But they made good choices in choosing directors that seemed to fit the increasing seriousness and adult tone and artistry that was on offer. And I thought that was really, really good. And number two, a con. The worship of the British class system really put me off the films in the first place. Um, it seems to lionise this whole idea of taking children away and segregating them in the world of Eton and Oxford so they're not part of the pleb universe and so that their entire existence is defined by them being in this public school system. In the UK, that means the private school system in Australia um, where they're, you know, every job they go through their entire life is given to them on a plate because they've been to Oxford or they've been to Harvard. Um, and I thought it worshipped it a bit too much, this whole idea of segregating people away. It was like Emma Watson was the scholarship kid because she was brilliant and she got in, but everyone else was sort of like hand-picked uh, and ended up in this very cosseted world. And I did find that grating. It did seem to, to sort of worship... The, if you are not part of this system, you're special if you're part of this system, but it's an unearned special, um, and I didn't like that about it. Uh, number one, the pro, Alan Rickman and the character of Severus Snape, uh, who starts as this evil teacher, and then we find out that he's actually a good guy, and then we're not sure. Um, he would have been a great character if he'd have stayed the evil teacher. Alan Rickman's performance of him and his diction and his enunciation was magnificent and a high point all the way up until now for me, or out of any of the characters, that would have been a great character. Then to make him actually a really good guy underneath that's hiding it, who's actually working on behalf of Harry Potter, that would have been an even greater character. But 
he is without a doubt J.K. Rowling's greatest creation because we don't get either. We get a far more complex man, a man formed by bad things, bullying and harassment when he was young, the unspeakable hardship that the only friend he had in the world was Harry Potter's mum, who he loved hopelessly as a child, and then the kid bullying him at school was Harry Potter's dad, and she falls in love with him and takes away, the bully takes away his only love of his whole life, and he never gets over it. The When we finally find, the, the revelations at the end of, um, I think it's the order, no, the Half-Blood Prince are some of the best of the whole franchise, and when we finally find out the truth about Snape, it's the most moving half hour of the entire franchise, and I was so happy that we got that resolution. He's, he's an amazingly complex man. He's not all good or all bad. He joins with the villains out of choice, out of the fact that he's bullied as a kid, and he only comes back to the good side out of selfish reasons, but the selfish reasons are love. And the way he lives selflessly from then on, I found to be really powerful because there's, there's this theory that Judas is the hero of the Bible that some people promote, that he would that Jesus was this aggrandizing character and it was Judas who let the whole world think that he was evil and that um, that would have been the true hardest thing to have done to promote the ideals of Christianity but to be regarded as a villain for the centuries afterwards would have been the most selfless, uh, humble way of living. Um, and you kind of get this with Snape. I wonder if J.K. Rowling ever thought about Judas in that way with Snape because he almost goes to his death with no one realising, with everyone thinking he's a villain. And I thought that was really powerful and poignant. Alan Rickman is magnificent throughout. He was a standout character and a standout acting and the standout creation of the whole franchise. My number one pro, Alan Rickman and Severus Snape. Trying to race through up to 2007. And the emergence of British director David Yates, who was a brave choice at this stage, because he hadn't really made that much in the way of, the, of cinematic releases, let alone $150 million budgets, which they were now. Uh, but he did direct the State of Play TV series in the UK, which was a phenomenal success. And he helms the remaining, remaining four films. Um, this is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix in 2007. And it interestingly starts with the bureaucracy. So we've got Hogwarts, the school where all the kids go to, but there's sort of like the bureaucracy of the magic world is sort of like in London, and they, for some reason, and uh, they sort of control all of the other elements of the magic world, the policing, the prisons, and all of that. They go into shock and panic at the emergence of Voldemort, who's the evil Darth Vader, uh, and try and shut down anyone that says that he is involved in, and respond to the situation with increased bureaucracy, uh, of which Harry nearly runs foul at the start, um, and he meets the Order of the Phoenix, which is a fairly bog-standard secret society. You get them in pretty much anything, but that's basically these a group of the main characters so far that have um, all been operating on their own as like vigilantes, the uh, Fellowship of the Ring, basically. Um, we get another turn, but this time we get the character of Dolores Umbridge. She comes down from central office as an authoritarian to wash away the cobwebs and enforce legislation. She makes them do standardised testing and only focus on things that will help them pass the tests. Um, 
This film for me was undoubtedly, I mentioned in my pros and cons about the film not being modern or iconoclastic or related to the real world. This is the most political film in the whole bunch by far. It is the rise of fascism. It's sort of like the, the way their child's books, Lord of the Flies or Animal Farm, are analogous to the rise of fascism. We get the way that the people go along with it, the brutality and the, the emerging totalitarianism and how some people go along with that, all very timely to now, because we're seeing that with the support of the right in politics now, how people would happily give away their civil liberties. If you asked something like 50% of voters in America if Trump should... Oh, if you ask more than 50% of Republican voters if Trump should be allowed to just not have a next election, I think it's over 50% said that they should suspend their own liberties. Um, and it, it really, she is an amazing character, Melda Staunton. She's a horrible person. She's something to behold. She is so extreme that she even justifies child torture to get her own ends and is oblivious to anything that she's doing being wrong. Because she has absolutely no, she doesn't, she doesn't possess the capacity to be wrong, and they're kind of, you know, during the war on terror. This is two thousand and seven. The idea of justifying torture because it's in the interest of the state, I thought that was pretty decent. Um, Tilda, uh, it reminded me of Tilda Swinton in the film Snowpiercer. But Tilda Swinton was a much more self-aware character in that she would flip on her bosses in a second out of self-preservation. But she, she's uh, Dolores Umbridge. Dolores Umbridge is an amazing characterization, and and she's detestable. You hate every second she's on screen. She does awful things, really horrible things, and does it with a smile. It's one of the best performances in the whole franchise. Uh, I thought the director once again kept the tone and the artistry, the cinematography, the soundstage, all the production values that had made the previous uh, films so good. Um, he kept them all, and he did really, really well. The only thing that I say there's a bit of a letdown here is it's a little bit more bloated. Uh, there are some extraneous scenes, like the whole half-hour opening with um, Harry Potter nearly getting expelled kind of didn't really need to happen. You could have achieved the same end without that happening it just sort of happens and then it's it's well you could have just started at the school term and it wouldn't have made much difference so it's a tiny bit bloated and the romance between harry and Chu is painfully painfully weak as all of his romances are i often think jk rowling must be like a little bit like stephen king uh um, and i think about this like marco pierre white says about restaurants there's, there's three things uh that, that are important um how they make you feel um, how you're treated when you're in them. Last place is food. Now, I wouldn't say Stephen King was a great writer in the fact of, say, Marcel Proust or James Joyce, but he does the other two things brilliantly, which is tell stories and create characters that you bond with. And I think that's what J.K. Rowling probably does as well. Uh, the final battle here, though, is very satisfying. It's the biggest and best yet. Um, the whole film is the first one that I would say veers into young adult territory. Um fully blown it could be a young adult film but it's got very strong themes i love the whole rise of fascism thing in it i love the fact that it was so connected it's just a little bit more superfluous than the very tight previous two films but still very strong so i'm going to give harry potter and the order of the phoenix eight out of ten and now we move on to harry potter and the half-blood prince which is kind of the film that ends 
before the final showdown. This is a, sort of like the end of the two towers. This is before we move on to endgame territory. Uh, same director again. Voldemort's in the ascendancy everywhere. Uh, and this time around he sends the bully uh, Draco, who's a nemesis. At this stage, a relatively poorly developed nemesis for Harry Potter at school. He's the one that picks on everyone in a very obvious style. But we're starting to learn that he's built like this through his dad. And this time around, we see a much better, one of the best characters emerge, which is seeing all of the doubt and the pain and anguish that has brought him to this point. And he's sent to kill Dumbledore. He's sent to kill Gandalf. Um, and then we find out that Snape, who we've always been on the knife edge about who he is, is a double agent working for Voldemort. And he's sent to um, basically keep Draco safe in his quest to kill Dumbledore. Um, Harry also gets his book, which is, says uh, Property of the Half-Blood Prince, and it's a school textbook, and throughout he's written notes which are invaluable, like spells and how to do things which are invaluable in helping Harry become a star pupil. Um, there's, a, there's a very big climactic thing with Dumbledore and Harry heading off to find what we find a Horcruxes, which is basically the lead villain, the Darth Vader Voldemort character, has split himself into seven of these horcruxes each containing a part of his soul so if someone kills him they can just use one of these things and bring him up essentially making him invincible uh, and they head off to this very um, bizarre place in the middle of a mountain somewhere on the sea uh, and have this huge titanic fireball go off um, and it's um, then we move on to the end game which is the the, the most traumatic experience yet and it reminded me of the empire strikes back we almost get the same sort of emotional tenor as um, when Luke finds out Darth's his father with the activities of Snape and Dumbledore and Harry at the end of this film. It's really good. It's really, really good. Um, Harry and his... I've noticed throughout them, Harry and his mates don't really do that much together. They're supposed to be a trio, but they're not exactly involved in it. It's really just Harry on his own most of the time. Uh, I did notice the racial inclusivity by this stage is one of the most painful in any film franchise. Obviously, these are the most white stories you could get, so they shoehorn black characters in. Normally, it's panning across a group of kids. One of them will be black, and he'll say, Hi, and that's it. It's so painfully done. They try and shoehorn different races, but it's really bad. They, why not just give a black character something to say? One of the main characters goes out with a black guy, and you spend most of the time looking at the back of his head. He doesn't even get a character. Um, the special effects and production design are off the charts by this stage. Different music composer as well to John Williams. Don't know who it is, but he was better as well. Um, and I thought they left a lot of things hanging. A lot of um, the mysteries weren't solved completely. You didn't quite know what was going on. Um, I thought this one, it relied less on introducing a couple of big name new characters and actually moving the legacy story along a lot. This was one of my favourites, probably one of my three favourites. Um, I'm going to give Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince eight and a half out of ten. Uh, we finally got to the end of the Harry Potter special reviews. Now we've got two films to go and I've been doing them in pairs and happily that fits with the fact that Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is in parts one and two. Uh, the first came out in 2010, and this is sort of like the clearinghouse. Everything sort of ended on an amazing note with the Half-Blood Prince. And it is, this is where the Lord of the Rings analogies come thick and fast, because 
This is almost like the start return of the king. We know we're building up to the final confrontation. We know what it's going to be. We know that Harry's going to fight Voldemort. We know there's going to be colossal battle scenes. In a way, it's almost as well, it's a bit like Fellowship of the Ring as well, because um, all of the main gang, all this sort of Order of the Phoenix crew, come together at the start and then are immediately sort of splintered to go off and do their own tasks. So as the Hobbits, we get uh, Ron, Hermione and Harry to do their tasks on their on, on their own and they're off to destroy the Horcruxes so that Voldemort becomes mortal and can be destroyed because even if they destroy him at the moment he can just come back again and everyone else has their own sort of world as like the fellowship goes off and does their things um, this suffers massively from the two film curse it's an awful thing and they just won't stop doing it um, there were quite a few at the same time. The Twilight films were terrible anyway, but um, there was particularly laborious, the uh, final two films of that. The Hunger Games was so bad. The final film was okay, but the one before that, uh, which was again split in two, was unwatchably awful. Um, it's, it's, it's a real shame because here I feel like I wish they'd started out being as cynical as making two films. Because um, it feels like they they were making one really long film and it got too long. So they sort of split it in the middle and went with that. But what we end up with is the fact that it feels like they were rushing to fit so much in to try and get it, you know, under three and a half hours long. And they kind of left the second film like that. So it feels really, really rushed. And they've split it at the wrong point. So we get far too much happening in the second film and virtually nothing in the first film. And it's a shame that they didn't sort of rejig a lot of the information from the first film and put it into the... Sorry, from the second film, put it into the first one and that they didn't cut the length of the first one of the two. Um, so there, there are lots of Lord of the Rings parallels, but it feels a lot like the Twilight franchise. That's not a compliment. Um... This one's got Harry and Hermione and Ron heading off and trying to find the Horcruxes and uh, doing so over two and a half hours in a film that has virtually as little story as the second film. It didn't need to be two and a half hours long. Why didn't they cut half an hour out of it? Why is it half an hour... I mean, why is, why is it longer than the final film with much less happening? Um, it's very dour. It's very slow. It's mopey. Um, uh, it's got whiny romantic elements and conflicts. Um, it's so Twilight. Even a lot of it happens with teenagers moping around in the woods. Every time I watch bits of a Twilight movie, they're either standing around in a lounge room moping or they're in the middle of the woods moping. This film, they're in the middle of the woods moping for most of the movie. Um, the first sort of 40 minutes or so are great. It's got an amazing visual spectacle. Uh, at the start for for about 40 minutes it's really really strong and the final 30 is pretty decent too but in the middle it seems that the central trio spend their time being morose and walking around in different woods they like move from one wood to another wood and having sort of romantic conflicts and um the one solace is the animation sequence that appears which shows the story of the deathly hallows that really livened things up and that's the kind of thing i imagine guillermo del toro putting in a film like the um um hell something i can't remember what they're called but those films hellraiser not hellraiser whatever those films were that's the kind of imagination he brings to the table and that was a really good bit 
I wondered what was shoehorned in here and what was padded because there's a whole sequence towards the end where Harry gets caught in the woods with the trio really easily by a group of nomarchs. And then they get taken to the brilliant character played by Helena Bonham Carter, a real standout character. Uh, and she defeats these guys in about five seconds. Now, Harry's already had a couple of standoffs with her boss, the all-powerful boss, and not been killed. Yet these group of guys can kidnap them all in the woods and they can't do anything to stop them. Yet she can just go blink and they're all gone. And you think, well, that wouldn't happen. Well, it's very uneven that suddenly they're so weak that these guys can capture them, but in other times they're strong enough to take on Voldemort. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. And that whole sequence that ends in the house, it's almost like that entire bit was created. I'd love to know if it was in the book because it ends up meaning very little. Um, and it's really grating to me in films where they don't pay attention to things. These are supposed to be wizards looking at arcane and esoteric things. They never pay attention to advice or things written down or people yelling at them. They never pay, Harry never pays attention to what's going on. They never pass on information. They walk around with these trinkets going, oh, I never knew that was going to end up being valuable despite it being given to me. Um, and that's a bit annoying for me. There's a dreary tone in the first Hello, uh, Death, Deathly Hallows. Um, it, I watched the third film and it made me really excited to watch the next one. And that happened all the way through to the Half-Blood Prince. I was really excited to watch this film. Even though the final film is the be-all and end-all, I wasn't even bothered about watching the final film because I'd had the life sucked out of me by this film. It was so dreary, it was so padded, it was so mopey in tone that I, I wasn't that excited about the finale and that's the biggest criticism I could lay at it. It's incredibly long and nothing happens. I don't know why they didn't trim this down. I don't know why they didn't put some of the stuff from... I don't know why they didn't choose a better midpoint um none of it seems it seems to be really badly cobbled together uh and i think this is the equal joint worst harry potter film i'm going to give um definitely hallows part one a four out of ten maybe a four and a half out of ten because the first sort of hour is pretty passable but it all gets sucked out of you by the end which is really annoying and we move on to the final harry potter and the definitely hallows part two the end game where we, we know what we're going to get we're going to get the standoffs and the battles and the revelations and we do um of course uh, we get the uh, big final battle at hogwarts um voldemort's armies march on hogwarts and we also get the standoff between the two characters and all the revelations um this is a far far better film it is flawed though um i felt that it was a little bit uneven in tone um it felt like they rushed a lot of it and uh, other parts were just big battle scenes. Um, it's shorter than the previous film. It makes no sense to me. And I felt like I was when I was watching it, I didn't really get engaged until the, until the character Snape and his revelations about halfway through. A little bit after the halfway point. Then it ignited. That half an hour of, of what happened with Snape was the most powerful of the whole franchise. And that was a continuation of the amazing drama of the end of The Half-Blood Prince. I, that's the first time I felt like I was back in that world. And it didn't disappoint. It was an incredible sequence. Really moving, really powerful. And it expanded the character of Snape even further. It was incredible. Um, and then we get 
Harry's sequence after that, which is unexpectedly cerebral and spiritual and art house. Um, and all of that sort of 40 minutes was the best probably of all of the films. It was incredible stuff. We also get by far the best performance by Ralph Fiennes of Voldemort. Both he and Alan Rickman get to have two magnificent days in the final film. Good, because they're probably my two faves. His performance as Voldemort in this film is superb. We get the full range of his emotions, of his nastiness, of his vindictiveness, his vanity, uh, his flaws in the fact that he can't see certain things that are coming. He's, he's scared as well. Um, and the final showdown was amazing. Daniel Radcliffe probably gives his best acting of the franchise as well. The cinematography is magnificent. Um, Hermione and Ron actually come into the fray for once. Um, and the whole climactic sequences and the battles and what happens and the revelations are perfect. So it's um, the only thing I didn't like and it really annoyed me, well, I, that really stuck out, was the epilogue. Now, I thought they could have ended this with the three main characters standing on the bridge, looking at the whole world annihilated around them. Great ending. Instead, they went to an epilogue that showed one potential future. Now, when the characters end in real time, you know a potential future is them all living happily ever after and having children that go to Hogwarts. And there are a myriad of other possibilities. So to actually literally show one of those possibilities all the way through and the most boring one of those, I thought was unnecessary and trite. And I didn't enjoy or find poignant that last sequence on getting on the train 20 years later. Um, and this, one of the things that annoyed me is you've been put through the emotional ringer in the lead up to them sort of being on the bridge at the end after everything's finished. And then suddenly you go 20 years later and the characters are on a different emotional plane. So you're with the characters emotionally devastated by and elated and everything by this stage. And then it's the characters leave on a different plane to you. And I thought it spoiled it. Um, but not enough. And the uneven tone wasn't enough. This isn't as consistently good as Azkaban or the Half-Blood Prince. Uh, and it's more uneven and it feels rushed at times. But the high points are higher. And I do tend to judge films on the ambition and the great points and the stuff that surprises me. So I'd mark this film down more than those films. But then it's got that whole bit with Snape and Harry is magnificent. And the final showdown's really well done. Uh, and it was a very good climax. So I'm still going to give Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows 8.5 out of 10. So we started on 7 out of 10 for The Philosopher's Stone, 4 out of 10 for Chamber of Secrets, Azkaban 8.5 uh Goblet of Fire, eight and a half. Uh, the Order of the Phoenix, eight. Half-Blood Prince, eight and a half out of ten. That's an amazing run, because I rarely give those scores anyway, and that's to, like great to outstanding films. And then a slight problem with that book book-ended final two films, where the first one I only gave four and a half out of ten. It's really bad, uh, and it annoys me that they didn't fix those two, because you would have had a relentlessly classic sequence of films. But the final film, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Eight and a half out of ten. Definitely the second half of that was one of the strongest halves of any of the films. Probably the strongest half. And that's the end of my Harry Potter special. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> that was a lot to get through in one show. Adios. <laughs>